Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. The overall theme of Ruth is that there is a bright hope in dark days. And it's one of the reasons I, I wanted to, to look at this because, let's face it, we live in some dark days, and we need a bright hope. The whole book of Ruth, though, is a story of redemption. It's a Gentile bride and a redeemer that comes and rescues this Gentile bride. That's the story of us. It's also a story of decision-making, and it takes place in the time of the Judges, um, Judges 21-25, the very last book of or verse of the book of Judges, says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. When you have no guide, you have no independent, this is what you need to do, it's, you can do about anything. And that's why the nation of Israel was in and out, up and down. They had no real guides. Well, in that setting, you had Elimelech, and Naomi lived in Bethlehem. They're in the house of bread, and things got, there was a famine in the land, and they decided, Elimelech decided as the head of the household, I'm taking my wife, my two sons, Malon and, and um, Killian, and we're going to Moab. And it's a type of us, when things get hard, we decide not to do it God's way, but to do it the world's way. And there's always a price for making that decision. When they did that, chapter 1, the very first part of chapter 1, we saw the result of that. The whole theme of chapter 1 is death. Elimelech died, Malon died, Killian died, and you're left with Naomi as a widow, Ruth as a widow, and Orpha as a widow. They have no family, they have no provision, they're broke. But in the midst of that, Naomi hears a word. She hears God has brought Bethlehem, had brought food to Bethlehem. So in the midst of her despair, in the midst of her lack, she hears a word of hope. A life without hope is disastrous. You know, we had a, another celebrity, and I, you know, we have lots of suicides in the world, but it's amazing when celebrities commit suicide, everybody gets shocked. How could, you, how could you have all this money? How could you have fame? How could you have such a great job? I mean, the last one was Anthony Bourdain. He traveled for a living. He went to different places and ate at fancy restaurants and got in front of a camera and told everybody how great it was. And I'm thinking, what a job, man. Okay, let's see, I'm going to go to France today and we're just going to find the best restaurants and eat the best food and I'll tell you guys how good it tastes. You know, I've watched a few of those shows because that's just really not my thing. But never once have I smelled the first aroma come out of that TV. I guess that's why it's like if I can't taste it, I can't smell it, why do I even want to pay attention to it? But in the midst of that, he killed himself. Why? Because what you do doesn't count if you don't know who you are. And if on the inside you don't have a purpose for living, it can get so dark and so empty and so hopeless that there's no reason to go on. This week, I, I, and I'm, not, I don't, I'm not getting political here, but Charles Krauthammer, he's a conservative's conservative. He's one of the most brilliant men I've ever read after. I mean, he's one of the smart guys. You may think you're smart. You get around somebody like Charles Krauthammer, where you realize, man, I'm just a blonde monkey. This guy, he's got some brains. But as he was a medical student years ago, went swimming, dove in a pool, broke his neck. He's laying at the bottom of the pool. He, knew, he's, he knows what he's done. He's got enough medical training. He knows I just broke my neck, and I'm about to die because none of my limbs are working. I can't swim, and he's laying at the bottom of the pool. And fortunately, someone noticed it. They got him out, and, but he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. Well, he had cancer surgery about a year ago. Because of his paralysis, he had a lot of complications. And just about a month ago, maybe a little less than a month ago, 
they found the cancer has come back and it's spread. It's a very aggressive cancer. And he wrote this very elegant letter, but it was also very tragic. Not just because he only has a few weeks to live, but because he, he's Jewish by birth, but he's an agnostic by choice. He's brilliant. He's had a real influence on our society, especially the political uh, parts of our society. But he has no hope that after he dies that there's anything. In his opinion, when he, when he departs from his body, that's it. He, he just will be annihilated. His, his soul is his physical brain. And I'm reading this letter and my heart's breaking and I've been praying for him. God, I mean, there's nothing will focus your attention like, I got two weeks to live. Clark and I were just talking. You know, I'm, I'm 67. The devil's tried to kill me so many times I've lost count. Health-wise, accident-wise, I mean, you know, dozens of different ways. And yet in my mind, I got a good 25, 30 years left. Well, when, when you're pushing 67 and you've got a few health issues, you realize, I'm, I'm believing for 25, 30 years, but it could be tomorrow. You don't know. But I'm not in fear of death. I don't welcome death. I'm going to fight death tooth and, and hammer every step of the way because it is my last enemy. But I have hope. And that hope gives me a reason to live. Naomi is sitting in, in Moab, and when she comes back, she has the testimony. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because the Lord has taken every way, everything away from me. I have nothing. My life is empty. That's a horrible place to be. Horrible place to be. And especially when you realize... I'm there because of decisions. In her case, she's there because her husband decided to go out to the world. God can't provide. I live in, in, in the house of bread, but God can't provide for me in the house of bread, so I'm going to Moab. She came back. She heard a word. It gave her hope. She came back, but she came back with nothing. She had no provision. She had no family. It was her and Ruth's two biggest needs. Now, let me just, I'm going to throw this out real quick, and you go find it in Ruth chapter 1. The reason Ruth came back with her and Orpha didn't, Naomi tried to talk him out of coming. She said, I don't want you, don't come back. You're young, stay here in Moab, go find a husband. Well, that's okay, you can get food, and you might even get a natural family, but there's not, you still don't have any spiritual hope. Orpha said, okay. And... If you read the, the, go through First and Second Samuel, Orpha was the grandmother of Goliath. Where it turns out Ruth ends up being the grandmother of David. Orpha bore fruit. She found a family, but her family resulted in evil. Ruth found a family and her family resulted in the king who's an, an heir of his will sit on the throne for eternity. Small decision, huge results. But they're, they're, when they come back, they have need of food and family. Basic need of every human being. I need relationships and I need to eat and drink. That's it. You know, in, in the former Soviet Union and in particular a couple of the Eastern European countries, they, because the state run everything, they would have orphanages back in the, the late 40s, 50s, and a lot of these orphanages were very understaffed, so they would have these babies come in, and these babies, the only physical touch they got, the only human contact they got was to change their diapers and to feed them. Other than that, nobody talked to them, nobody held them, nobody caressed them, and these kids grew up with huge psychological problems. You never outgrow that need. We always need human contact. We always need this relationship. And if you can get it from, you can get all your natural relationships working perfectly, you still have a need for a supernatural relationship. 
You know, it's always, I've heard this preached as long as I can remember. There's a hole inside the heart of every man that only Jesus will fill. It doesn't matter how successful you are, you're going to be empty. It's part of the reason that very successful people always chase toys. Because they're trying to fill that hole. It's part of the reasons that substance abusers um, abuse substances. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, they're trying to fill that hole. There's a hole inside of them that, that, that just they either want to numb themselves or distract themselves to where they don't feel that need. Well, fortunately, when Ruth and Naomi came back, Ruth chapter 2, um, they found that while they were gone, while, while death was reigning in chapter 1, God was providing their redemption and they didn't even know it. And when they got back to chapter 2, they got back to Bethlehem, um, Boaz was waiting. And he immediately met their physical need. He provided them with food for two reasons. He knew Naomi. Naomi was an extended part of his family. But he heard about Ruth. And, and we've, I've commented on this. He didn't hear about how good-looking Ruth was, and she may have been a beautiful woman. But what he heard was and what he expressed was, you have met and helped Naomi. You care for Naomi. In other words, you're doing something that wasn't required of you to someone who can't pay you back. That's the greatest testimony there is. It's why, James, it's one of the very few places in the New Testament where a direct behavior is instructed. And James says, this is, is, is great religion, helping widows and orphans. Why did he pick those two? Because widows and orphans aren't in a position to sow things back to you. It's also why he warned us, don't take rich people into your congregations and give them prized seats. Because usually when you do that, you're doing that with a motivation. Your motivation is, ooh, I bless them, they'll bless me back. It's quiet in this Baptist church. And then we get to, last week we looked at Ruth chapter 3, where um, Boaz had met the physical needs, he'd met the food need for Ruth and Naomi, but things weren't progressing. Well, we're going to find out today in Ruth chapter 4, they weren't progressing because Boaz is an honorable man, and he's not first in line as a kinsman redeemer, and he's not going to jump line. He's waiting to see what happens. And, but, but Naomi instructs Ruth to go to the field and go do these certain things and basically offer yourself to Boaz as your wife and ask him, do you want to redeem me? It, 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 it was a very risky move and it required some faith because this is nothing that, that Ruth knows about. Naomi has a little bit of understanding about it, but Ruth has none. She's from Moab. So it took some risk and it took faith to reach out to try to grab God's intended purpose. In order to do that, there was one first step, and it's the first step that we have to do in every any time we have lack in our life. We saw it in 2 Samuel 12:20. David had been mourning his child. He had, had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had um, murdered Uriah. And Bathsheba had given birth to a child, and the child was dying. And he went, got on his face, tore his clothes, threw ashes all over him, went to praying. He found out the child was dead. He said, that's it, my prayers. No sense in praying now. I can go to him, and he can't come back to me. So it said he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. It signified that he ended his period of mourning. He ended his mourning when most people would start their period of mourning. We usually start mourning after someone dies, although in actuality you'll mourn before they die if, if you know it's coming. Now there are people that... Um, um, Shelby had us pray for a family yesterday, it's a friend of his, Guy seemingly was in perfect health and was out doing something and just fell over. He was dead. Sudden heart attack. Not a bad way to go. If you're going to die, 
walk in perfect health and just step out of your body and go home. But when you do that, you don't have a chance to make any decisions. You don't have a chance. It's one of the, the, the fallacies of, well, I'll wait till the end and then I'll make a decision for Christ. Sometimes you don't have a second or two to make that decision. It just happens. And you're gone before you know it. But, but for the family, that, that's going to bring in a sudden period of mourning. If you've ever lived with someone who was, was gradually dying, they were terminally ill for a long period of time, you start mourning long before they die. In fact, there are times when death can be a relief, both of the person dying and the family having to try to watch them go through what they're going. David said, it's over now, I'm done. Go wash myself, anoint myself, and change my clothes. Ruth did the same thing, Ruth 3.3. 3. Naomi told her, go wash yourself, go anoint yourself, and put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor and offer yourself to Boaz. Now, to our ears, it's like, wow, that's pretty forward. Not for them. Now, I want to go back, and I'm, I'm going to try to read through these very quickly. Go to Leviticus 25, verse 25 through 28. This is the law on redeeming a piece of land. You have to understand that families were given land uh, when they came into the kingdom. God assigned the land, and they could sell their land, but every 50 years at the, um, at the year of Jubilee, anything they sold, it went back to, the, to the, the owners or the inheritors of that land because God just reset ownership of the land every 50 years. So when you sold land, you didn't really sell it the way we do. I mean, I look, I don't own it, but I look north of Milltown where I grew up there's our farm. That's my farm. It'll always be my farm. Do I own it? Nope. <laughs> there have been two or three families owned that piece of land since I lived there. But I claim ownership because that's where my, some of my best memories are, is, is in that, on that piece of land because I, I lived my formative years there. But in Israel... It's going to come back, so when I sell the land, I don't sell it permanently, so it affects the value. If I've only got 20 years to Jubilee, it's not, I can't sell it for as much as if we just had Jubilee last year, and you got 50 years now. You can use this land for a long period of time. Well, <clears throat> he always, God always provided a way to redeem the land before you got to Jubilee. That's what he... he talks about here in Leviticus 25, 25. He said, if one of your brethren becomes poor, this is exactly what happened to Elimelech. They got poor, and some of this is supposition on my part, but I think it's correct. With the famine, they, they started running out of food. He started running out of money, so he sold his land and got some money and went to Moab because there was food in Moab. And then they got there and they died and Naomi and Ruth and Orpha used up all the money and they're coming back, but they don't own anything. They don't own the land now. In fact, Naomi um, has a right to it, but she has to buy it back up until the, the Jubilee year. Evidently, Jubilee was a little ways off or she would have been much more patient than she was. But it says, if your brethren becomes poor... And is sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to re redeem it, then he himself, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return that it may return to his possession. But if he is not able to to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return, and it shall return to his possession. Now, this was just concerning the land. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, this talks about redeeming family. J exactly what happens here. Malon and, and Kelion die, they had no children. They had no one to pass this land on to. So Ruth, since she returned with Naomi, is looking for this uh, Leverite laws, which is what they call it, 
She's looking for someone to step in and take the place of her husband and raise up a child to Malon so that this child can inherit it. Verse 20, or excuse me, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together, then one of them dies and has no son. The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, and that was a very common occurrence we saw last week, Judah's son died, and he had another son, and he wouldn't force his son to go fulfill this obligation to Tamar, and Tamar seduced Judah by disguising herself as a prostitute so that she could get pregnant by her father-in-law, and when he went to, they weren't going to stone her according to the law, they were going to burn her. They decided we're just going to treat her a little rougher than usual because she's played the prostitute. She threw it up to him. No, I did this and I was lawful in doing this, but I had to stoop to these circumstances because you would not fulfill this law. And Judah said, you're right. I'm the one that sinned. And the child was born. His name is Perez. We're going to see at the end of Ruth 4. He's in the lineage. Perez is part of the lineage of Christ eventually, but part of the lineage of Boaz. It says, verse 7, But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now, this gets pretty, pretty um, severe for this brother who won't do this. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. There is no greater insult in a Middle Eastern family than to have someone throw or hit you with a shoe. I remember watching it back in 2003. We, took, we, we invaded Iraq. We got to uh, Baghdad, liberated Baghdad. <clears throat> All these Iraqis who had been oppressed by Saddam Hussein came out, and there was this huge statue to him in this square. And they were trying to pull it down. They took sledgehammers, and they were beaten on a marble pedestal. Well, the pedestal was... I don't know, 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot? You can beat on that with a sledgehammer all day. You're not going to do it. You're not going to bring it down. So finally, the Americans were there. They brought up an armored vehicle, threw a big rope around his neck, and pulled it down. And all of these Iraqis jumped up on it, took their shoes off, and started beating this statue's head with their shoes. It's the ultimate sign of disrespect because your shoes, it's one of the reasons a lot of foreigners, especially Oriental people, come to America and they watch us walk into our houses with our shoes on and they think, my God, what are you doing? You walk into most places in the world, the shoes that you wear outside, you leave them at the door and you put on, on house shoes because your shoes are picking up all kinds of filth out here in the world. And if I take my shoe off and hit you with the bottom of my shoe, I'm telling you, you're the filth of the world. To these people, that's the ultimate insult. And then on top of that, they just said she gets to spit in his face. I'm telling you, the crew I work, I, I ran, grew up with, you spit on somebody, let alone their face, you better be ready to go to war because there's going to be a fight because you don't take that. This is said, you don't want to fulfill this obligation that you have to your dead brother? We're going to publicly humiliate you. And yet, it happened a lot. Maybe not the public humiliation, but men saying, I'm not fulfilling this law. And part of it was greed. We'll, we'll see that later. We also saw this 2008, if you remember. President Bush went to have a press conference in Baghdad. 
reporter took his shoes off, threw his shoes at the president. He was pretty quick. He showed he's got some reflexes. He dodged both of them. And then the one I had never seen until I, I did a little bit of searching. In 2013, uh, Mahmoud um, yeah, he was the president of Iran, went to Egypt. Iran's Shia Muslim, Egypt's primarily Sunni Muslim. They hate each other. And he's walking into a mosque, and a guy takes his shoe off and throws it at this guy. He's the president of Iran. Uh, he left immediately. His security snatched him up because they realized people are going to throw shoes at him. We got a hostile crowd here. It was insulting because he's a Shia and he's a murderer and we, we don't like him. There's a blood feud there that centuries old. So that brings us to this real quick review. Ruth 4. So let's, let's go to Ruth 4 verse 1. We're going to read through this. Remember at the end of Ruth 3, Ruth had gone to the threshing floor. She offered herself to, uh, to Boaz and said, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. Redeem me. Take me as your wife. And Boaz said, yeah, like to, but there's somebody in line ahead of me. There's somebody that's closer to your kin than I am. And he has, he has the right of first refusal. So Boaz says, but don't fear. Go home and rest. Have some faith in me. Then we come to this. Verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, or the, the kinsman redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend. Literally, that means, it's a, a Hebrew idiom, means come aside so-and-so. They purposely do not put this man's name in the Scriptures. Now, there are places where God will, he'll name people that are evil. And there are places where he names people that have done good. You go into um, Exodus and you look at when um, it, it introduces Moses. It gives the name of the midwives that refused to kill the, the Hebrew babies. It's one of the few places where people that were not Hebrews, and they, there's no indication they ever trusted in Yahweh, they are named and blessed because of what they did. So I, I believe there's, there's, there can be a motivation here. We're going to see it in a few minutes of I don't want to, well, it's obvious this guy says I don't want to risk my inheritance to my children, so I can't do this, but there's no evil motivation here. I believe that's why he's not named. But it says, come aside, friend, and sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. This is Boaz talking. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Abimelech. So this is a relative of Elimelech and a relative of Boaz. And he says, They, they sold that, this, this property... And I thought I would inform you, just sharing some news here, buddy. Yeah, he, Boaz is setting a, well, not really setting a trap, but he's, he's making a sale right here. He said, I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So the guy said, Mr. So-and-so said, I will redeem it. Now, when you read that, my first impression is, what? This whole thing has been leading up. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz has just offered all of this, the land, Naomi, Ruth, to this guy, and he says, yeah, I'll do it. If you ended the story here, it's about as anticlimactic as, as you can get. But as Paul Harvey used to say, this is not, you know, let's, let's read the rest of the story. So then Boaz said, now, now keep in mind, he's talking about the land. So the land has value, and he's going to get it discounted over what this, whoever, whoever bought it from Elimelech. He's, he's going to get it a discount from what it got sold. 
Because it's been 11 or 12 years since Elimelech sold it to this guy. So he's used it all this year. So he only has to pay the value from this time to Jubilee. So he's getting a discounted piece of land. Plus, when he gets it, Naomi's past childbearing years. So his children are going to inherit this land. It's going to stay in that family. But it's not going to be... Elimelech's relatives, it's going to be his relatives, his kids, that inherit this land. He's buying it at a discount, and it's going to stay in his family. Pretty good investment. But verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So he just threw in the kicker. Now, you can buy this land at a discount, but you also get Ruth in the bargain. By the way, she's a Moabitess. It's like going to the car dealer and they tell you, this is a really nice car, except it's been wrecked three times, but it looks good. Now, no car salesman's ever going to tell you that a car... Well, today they almost have to because you can go on Carfax and find out all this information. But used to, they would never tell you all the things they knew were wrong with that car. They just shined it up and said, here, this is a really nice looking car. And you realize the only thing holding together is the, pot, the, the, the wax on the paint. But, but he's, he's saying, you get Ruth... She's a Moabitess, you know, and they're not really that nice. Also, you're going to have to raise up children to Elimelech's family, and when that child comes of age, this land that you paid for it becomes his. Your kids are not going to get to inherit it. And he's thinking, yeah, that bargain's not quite so big a bargain right now. And the close relative, verse 6, said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. Because what he realizes is, I'm going to have to take what cash I've got to pay for the land, and this is money that my kids are never going to see. So I am depriving my own children to raise up children to another man's family. This is a higher price than I'm willing to pay. And since there's somebody standing in line, I'm not going to have to go before the elders and get spit in the, you know, letters spit in my face and whack me with a shoe. So he says, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Then verse 7, now this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a, com a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said, Mr. So-and-so said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Now, when you read this, I'm thinking, what's this got to do? Well, it was also, and if you didn't uh, fulfill the Leverite law, the, the, the wife, that, the widow, that you wouldn't come in and raise up children for her dead husband could humiliate you, but also if you were married and you decided that your wife needed divorcing, all you had to do was hand her your sandal. And that was your sign of a divorce. So what this guy, Mr. So-and-so, is doing when he hands the sandal to Boaz, he's saying, in effect, I'm divorcing myself from the right to redeem Ruth and this land. That's his way of signing a contract and saying, I'm out. Boaz has been smart enough. You know, the law says, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. He's got ten. Smart man. I just, I, I'm two, two or three is good, but I've got ten here to witness this thing. So this guy has just divorced himself from his rights and it's passed to Boaz. Boaz was very intelligent in how he did it. Verse 9, And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, This guy has had, however long this has been, it's been weeks since Naomi and Ruth have been back in the land. 
And he's never once come and offered himself to redeem it. Only when Boaz came to Mr. So-and-so and pressed the issue, yeah, I guess I can, but no, that price is too steep to pay. Boaz, in a heartbeat, after this guy gives up his right, Boaz says to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, who, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. There's a lot said right there. First of all, Boaz did not hesitate. He said, I'm buying the land back from Naomi, but I'm mainly, I'm buying Ruth. And I'm doing it to raise up children to Malon. And then the witnesses came right up and blessed him. First thing they declared... The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Now the interesting part here, all of the women that are going to be mentioned here are not Jews. Keep in mind, Rachel and Leah were not Jewish. Jacob went back to, his, to Abraham's brother, who was not a Jew. Only Abraham's lineage were of the lineage of the covenant. So they, in fact, you saw when, when um, they um, uh, came out, the, Rachel's father came and overtook them. He said, one of you all stole one of my household idols. Rachel had it in her tent. She brought an idol with her. So she obviously was not sold out to Yahweh at this point in her life. So he, they're saying, look, these two women... Not Jacob, not Israel. These two women built the house of Israel. That's an incredible statement for somebody of this period. This is a patriarchal society. And yet God is emphasizing these two women, the, the, Ruth is going to be like these two women who are going to build out the entire house of Israel. And not only her, but they're going to be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar was also a Canaanite woman. She was not a Jewish bride. And now you've got Ruth a Moabitess coming in here. God is emphasizing the, the, the um, people outside the covenant are helping to build the people of the covenant. And by doing that, he's saying, it's not a matter of your natural birth. Abraham is the father of faith. But look at Abraham. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. One a Jew, one a Gentile. Well, yeah, but that Gentile was born of the handmaid. Well, wait a minute. Now you go on down and you've got Jacob and Esau. Same father, same mother. One a Jew, one a Gentile. Why? Because of their decisions. It's not who your parents are. God's throwing this in the face of Israel. I listened to, to something Dennis Prager said this, this week. Listening to, uh, um, and he was talking politics, but he got off into faith. And he said, the difference between, one of the big differences between Christianity and, and Judaism is you're a Jew because you're born a Jew. Rachel wasn't born a Jew. Neither was Leah. Neither was Tamar. Neither was Ruth. And yet they're all in the lineage of the Jew of all Jews, Jesus. Because Jesus is, and God is trying to make the point, it's not your parents. 
Who cares who mom and dad are? How's your heart? What's your decision? That's the important part. Let's go to verse um, um, 13. Now, this is, this is really interesting. We have had three chapters and 12 verses in this chapter of all kinds of details leading up to get Ruth and Boaz together. And we finally get them together and in one verse. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, she bore a son. All of these details leading up to how they got together, well, they're together, so they got married, they had a family, and God gave them a child. Wow, lots of thanks for the details. The emphasis, though, is not on their marriage. The emphasis is not on, on the son. The emphasis is the Lord gave. The Lord gave. God blessed the union. Amen? It was Yahweh that gave this child. And the other interesting thing is, as we read these next verses, suddenly Ruth and Boaz are nowhere to be found. It all goes back to Naomi and it goes to this kid. Verse 14, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a kinsman redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. Who is this that they're talking about as a kinsman redeemer? talking about Obed, the baby, not Boaz. This is the only place in the Bible where a baby is considered a kinsman redeemer. How's he redeeming anything from, from, uh, for Naomi? He's doing it because he's the product of this union that, that God brought together. God has played this out. Even when Naomi was at her worst, she had no provision. She had no food. She had no family. She had no money. She was bitter and empty because the Lord's cursed me. God was raising up a Redeemer and providing for her and setting provisions aside, and she knew nothing about it until she finally heard that word. Oh, I hear that there's bread in Bethlehem. Let's go home. You girls stay behind. And Ruth said, nope, I'm going with you, Naomi. Your people are my people. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. And your God will be my God. That's the kicker right there. God said, come on. I'm going to use that faith to bring about a lot of changes. Verse 15. And may he, Obed, be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, for Ruth, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. She's better than the perfect son. You imagine your perfect son, Ruth's done more for you than that perfection could do. Because she's given you this son. Obed here is, is the kinsman redeemer, and it tells us a, a lot more about Naomi and Naomi's faith and God's provision than just about Ruth. And then verse 16, it says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. He's in the lineage of the king who of God said, I will not let anyone in, or, or your name fall out forever. I will have your offspring be the king of Israel for all eternity. When you get to Matthew, you find that the, he does that. Not only does, and, and if you were going to end a story, this was probably where you would end it. I mean, it, it's just, this is the logical place to do it. But this is like the movie, and I, can't, I can never pronounce this guy's name. He, but he is famous for his movies. He always has a twist at the end. And if you watch his movies, you always wait. Because at the end, you think it's, this is where we're going. It's ended. This is it. And then suddenly it takes a 90 degree turn. And his, his M, yeah. Yes, M. Night Shyamalan, or however you say that. This is the twist, though. He doesn't end the, the story here where 
Obed's born, Obed has a son, and that son brings in David the king. How he ends it is the genealogy, and he backs up to Perez. Remember, Ruth's a Moabitess. She's not supposed to be allowed in the, into the, the kingdom of Israel for generations. And yet they go back, start this genealogy with Perez, whose mother was Tamar, who was a Canaanite. It says, now this is the genealogy of, of Perez. His mother was Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Now, Salmon, they don't tell you this, but his mother was Rahab, a harlot, a Canaanite. And I've had people argue with me before. Said, now, if you go back and read the Hebrew, it says that she was just an innkeeper. Well, go read the New Testament description of her. It says she was a prostitute. And the word doesn't mean innkeeper. It means she was a prostitute. And Jesus said, I'm proud that she's my great, 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 however many great, grandmother. Because it's not who she was, it's who she is. So Salmon begot Boaz. So Boaz's mother was a known prostitute. This might be why Boaz is old and he has no kids. Probably no, not too many good Jewish girls really wanted to get into Boaz's family, and yet, had they got into Boaz's family, they could have been the grandparent of the king of kings. And then Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. <coughs> We've got... All of these Canaanite, Moabite women in the lineage of David and then eventually the lineage of Jesus because God's trying to emphasize it's not your birth, it's your decisions. Now there are, are, are five overall results and I'm going to wrap this whole thing up with these. If you look at Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 to Ruth, um, what is this last one, 4.22. There's five things that went on. Five things that, that God redeemed Naomi and Ruth out of, and by, by extension, the entire nation of Israel and us. He brought them from death to life. Chapter 1 is all about death. The end of the book is all about life. I brought you a Redeemer. He brought life, and that life leads to eternal life. That's the biggest picture you'll ever take away from the book of Ruth. The second one, in, in doing that, he brought them from cursing to blessing. They were cursed. Elimelech went to Moab. Everybody died except the women, and they were left destitute. And in the end, the rich guy came in, redeemed them. It's where you get the picture. The, the knight in shining armor on the white horse comes in and saves the day. It's exactly what Ruth did. He brought them from despair to hope. He brought them from bitterness to joy. Ruth thought, or, or Naomi thought it was done. God has taken everything from me. I'm just bitter to I've got my grandson on my breast and I'm happy. And the people are exclaiming and saying, hey, this is going to be like Rachel and Leah who built the entire nation of Israel. This kid is going to be blessed. The people of Bethlehem were declaring it before he was, was ever out of diapers. And then the last one, he, he brought them from emptiness to fullness. All of those things God has promised us. All of those things are true for us. They're all true, not through our natural birth, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, not because of whether our checkbook has a big balance or no balance. It all comes down to do you get yourself in the lineage of this king? Ruth, Boaz came and redeemed Ruth and put her in the lineage of David and then eventually Jesus. We get to become not just in the lineage of Jesus, but we get to become one of his siblings. 
Remember, it says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. He's become my brother. I have a relationship with him, so much so that Jesus describes his relationship with the Father in the New Testament. I am in him and he is in me. You see me, you see the Father. And then he looks at us and he says, you're in me and I'm in you. You see, when, when they see you, they should see me. Now, my actions may not always represent him well. But if you could see the real me, all you'd see is Jesus. That's why the enemy flees when we resist him. Because you, when you resist him, you, all he sees is Jesus. He doesn't know, is, is this the real Jesus or is this the one that's born just like him? To the enemy, all he's, now he sees your body. He knows, who, he knows you, your natural state better than you know your natural state. But spiritually speaking, he's looking at you and saying, man, don't mess with that one. Been down that road. You can't, he knows who he is. And if you know who you are and you know who Jesus is, you can come boldly before the throne of, of grace to find grace and mercy to help in a time of need. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again a thousand times. If your heart is still beating, you're in a time of need. We have more needs than we can meet in myself and out in the world around me. That's why God doesn't tell us to give into everything. He says, give as I show you. He does want us, we, we, we addressed this in, in the first two sermons. He wants us to be generous givers. And I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking about just our lifestyle. I have to be ready to give into people's lives, to sow into people's lives. That's why Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. What's that mean? That means when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. If somebody has a need, you need to ask, Lord, can I help meet this need? And it may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be, it may be praying for them, it may be counseling them. There are a million different ways we can bless people. Sometimes it's just with a smile. Sometimes it's just sitting and crying with someone who's crying. Sometimes it's just sitting with them and saying nothing. Just being there so that they know I'm not alone. It doesn't take a lot to bless people. And when people know you're a Christian, they, it will reflect on Christianity and it will reflect on Christ. And it will open doors for, for them to be receptive to the gospel. I'm, I'm going to close with this last statement. I, I follow a, a scientist called Hugh Ross. And th there are a lot of things I disagree about his theology. But I admire one thing. He, he walks into, because he's a... a He's a, an astrophysicist. He's another one of those. He's just a smart guy. But he goes and, because he has a Ph.D. in astrophysics and he knows astrophysics, he goes and, and, and speaks about Christianity and about creation and about the existence of God to physicists. <clears throat> and primarily, they are not Christian. But he begins every um, speech or every talk that he gives at these universities, he begins it with this question. I'm a scientist, and I'm going to present some evidence to you today. And I need you to answer a question. And he said, first of all, and be honest, he said, I want you to raise your hand if you believe there's a God. And he said, 99% of the people, or no, excuse me. He said, I want you to raise your hand if you believe there is no God. You're either an atheist or an agnostic, either one. There might be a God, but I don't see him. 99% of the people will raise their hands and say, yeah. I don't either don't believe in God or I'll, I'll extend the theoretical possibility, but I've never seen any evidence. And then he says, okay, so I'm talking about everybody in here. Now, this is my second question. If I present evidence to you today that proves pretty substantially that there is a good scientific basis that for the existence of God, are you open to changing your mind? And he said, very rarely does it get more than about a third of the people that will raise their hand. And the first time he did that, he realized, my whole effort here is towards that third. The, uh, the two-thirds, 
Their mind's closed. It doesn't matter what I say, no matter what I do, their mind and their lives is shut. They're not open to the gospel. They're not going to listen to it. But that third that said, if you give me some evidence, I'll listen to you. That's who I live for. We are in that same boat. There are people in your lives, your life should tell a story. It should be a, a fragrance that, that just brings people in and wants them to, to, to give them a good impression of what being a Christian is. But there are a lot of people that no matter what you do, they've already rejected the gospel and they are not open to changing their mind. And there's not much you can do. Doesn't mean we don't need to pray. Doesn't mean we don't need to be kind to them and present them and pray God that they will, will change their heart. But there are a lot of people that they're just looking for, an ex for a reason to believe. And we could be, our behavior could be the thing that sparks them to investigate a little more. Those are the people that I need to live for. It's the Ruths, not the Orphas. But there are Ruths out there. They want to believe. Are we willing to sacrifice our lives? And by that, I'm not talking about you got to be a martyr and die. I'm talking about living every day thinking, who can I influence today? Going into every situation and every uh, uh, contact with a person with the thought, how is this going to impress them? How is this going to affect this person? Are they going to look and see, you know, of course, crosses are worn as jewelry today by people who are not Christians. But if they see that cross and they also see me cussing, or if, God forbid, they see the, the fish symbol in the back of my car and they see me driving like an idiot, cutting people off, and when somebody honks at you, you tell them you're, they're number one, that's not a very good representation of, of Christ and Christianity. It's one of the reasons if you put a fish symbol on your, on your car, drive sweet. And when you sell the car, take the emblem off. Let some heathen drive your car, your old car, and people think they're a Christian when they're acting the idiot. Amen? It's all important because everything we do, God doesn't look at where we came from. He's interested in where are we going. What's my next step? Am I willing to take off my clothes of mourning and step into something new? Give up on the things that I've lost and say, God, I've got so much loss in my life. And he said, so what? Plant some seeds and get some new crops. Look to tomorrow, not to yesterday. It's dead. It's gone. It doesn't matter. So many of us, we're still in mourning over yesterday and we need to forget yesterday and press on in. That's why Paul said, I forget what lies behind and I press towards the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Why? Because hopefully my life is an in not hopefully, my life is an influence on others. It's the old, old saying, your life tells a story, do you mean what you say? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. And I just ask, Lord, and you can join me in this prayer and agree with it. Father, I want to be like Boaz. I want to be the one that helps bring people that are desperate, bring people that, have, that are bitter and have nothing, and show them the provision of God through a word, through a gift, through a smile, through whatever means you lay at my feet or put in my hand, that I might be a witness to you and a witness of who you are. Help me to be a faithful witness, Lord. Help my life to tell the story of who Jesus is faithfully, to show your love, to show your, your provision, to bring them from death to life, from emptiness to fullness, from despair to hope, to, to make ways for them to understand that God is not their problem, but God is their answer. 
that you aren't the one. It's, it's Satan that steal, kill, steals, kills, and destroys, but you have provided for abundance and for abundant life. Help me to be that influence that shows people the abundant life that you have provided for. Help me to live that out every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.